Hi, I'm Scott Masson with Paideia Today, here with my colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen. And uh, we are going to look at a huge figure in Western civilization, not just in literature, but in Western civilization today, St. Augustine. And we're going to focus in particular on this work uh, on Christian teaching, De Doctrina Christiana, but our uh, discussion is going to comprehend a variety of his other works and um, various subject matters, uh, including all the way up to contemporary literary theory. But I want to start off with a, a quotation from Augustine. To this point on our podcasts, our discussions, we've looked at uh, literary works uh, from Homer all the way through Virgil. We're now looking at a Christian theologian, at least that's what he's chiefly known as, and how he received that tradition is one of the matters of interest, I think, because there are those who've said that what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem and thought that uh, the education of, of Homer, the Greeks, Virgil, etc., should be of no interest to Christians because it's pagan learning. Augustine, who was educated in that tradition and was a, a convert as an adult, writes this, any statements by those who are called philosophers, especially the Platonists, which happen to be true and consistent with our faith should not cause alarm, but be claimed for our own use, as it were from owners who have no right to them, like the treasures of the ancient Egyptians who possessed not only idols and heavy burdens, which the people of Israel hated and shunned, but also vessels and ornaments of silver and gold and clothes, which on leaving Egypt, the people of Israel, in order to make better use of them, surreptitiously claimed for themselves. They did this not on their own authority, but at God's command. And the Egyptians in their ignorance actually gave them the things of which they had made poor use. See Exodus 3, 21 and 22 and 12, 35 and 36. So similarly, all the branches of pagan learning contain not only false and superstitious fantasies and burdensome studies that involve unnecessary effort, which each of us must loathe and avoid as under Christ's guidance we abandon the company of pagans, but also studies for liberated minds, which are more appropriate to the service of the truth, and some very useful moral instruction as well as various truths about monotheism to, to be found in these in their writers. Now these treasures, like the silver and gold, which they did not create, but dug, as it were, from the mines of providence, which is everywhere, which were used wickedly and harmfully in the service of demons, must be removed by Christians as they separate themselves in spirit from the wretched company of the pagans and apply to their true function, that of preaching the gospel. As for their clothing, which corresponds to human institutions, but those appropriate to human society, which in this life we cannot do without, this may be accepted and kept for conversion to Christian purposes. And this is exactly what many good and faithful Christians have done. I note this passage, and, and uh, it's, I read it at length, and I realized that the uh, form of expression is a little bit uh, convoluted for modern uh, readers, uh, hard to follow. But uh, he is basically saying, first of all, that there are things that are naturally good and true and beautiful, which every culture and every civilization has had at their possession. And that's an interesting point, a starting point. But the use of those things can be misapplied, but that doesn't make the things that were misused bad or evil or to be neglected. On the contrary, it is to be used. And so I, I observe when I say this to, the, to my uh, uh, audience, uh, that what they were intended to do with this gold is to adorn the temple of God with it and the utensils and all that. That's the intended use, and that was for glorifying God mm -hmm. in his temple, which is a symbol of, uh, or a, an exact representation of heaven, we're told, in, in the book of Hebrews. But note that they could also misuse it and abuse it, because what do they do with the gold as soon as they're out of Egypt? They make a golden calf. But that, that opportunity uh, which Augustine presents there is a really interesting connection point with how Christians can engage with their culture. It's a sort of a model. And it's not Augustine's model. He gets it right out of scripture. Yeah, it's uh, an important 
an enormously influential passage, which unfortunately you know, has been lost uh, in the history of ideas. But it's, it's a, a notion that uh, Augustine's passage here was quoted time and again and again by countless thinkers thereafter. Uh, and maybe that goes some way to also underscoring the sheer influence Augustine had on Western culture. I mean, he wrote uh, really basic texts that were meant for largely mass audiences, you know, things like the City of God and the Confessions, what have you, very accessible texts. We have somewhat more technical texts, such as what we're talking about today in De Doctrina Christiana. Uh, we have incredibly complex texts that he also wrote, De Trinitate, on the Trinity. The man wrote on just absolutely everything. And he was quoted continuously as an authority for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, just about um, thereafter. And this is one of the key ideas here that he has, like, what are we to do with the good things that uh, come to us through pagan culture? One of the biggest stumbling blocks for the conversion of Augustine to Christianity was the apparent crudeness of the Christian worldview compared with the beauty and the power and the eloquence of the pagan worldview and pagan literature specifically, uh, which he just absolutely adored. He loved the Aeneid. He loved the, uh, the ancient works. He admired them. He, he took them as a, a sort of a, a, a polar star by which to navigate his way in life. And the idea that he should abandon this was to him uh, an absolutely nauseating idea. Uh, and so for many, many years, he simply could not leave it behind. And this passage explains how finally he came to reconcile his love for pagan culture and the beauty within it and the wisdom within it uh, with a, a Christian worldview. And to some extent, he was largely shepherded through this process by a figure who is now almost entirely forgotten by history, uh, uh, Bishop Ambrose uh, yes. in Milan. Who was a like, likewise uh, enormously learned man, right? He's hugely, not, yeah. hugely learned. I, I, as a side note here, um, I remember one point where he talks about uh, he's he's on his way to uh, visit Ambrose, Augustine is in Milan, and he's told that he's in the garden and he's reading, and so Augustine goes to the garden mm -hmm. to see where he is, and he sees there's there's Ambrose, and he is indeed reading. But uh, Augustine Silent is language. absolutely shocked. Yes, exactly. He's, he's tracing uh, the lines with his fingers as he's reading. So clearly he's reading. Uh, but he's not saying a thing. And to Augustine, this was revolutionary. Uh, we we uh, seem to have forgotten that uh, if you read in ancient times, you read aloud. That was simply how it was done. You would speak the word. Um, but uh, Ambrose was doing it all in his mind. Um, and now, of course, silent reading is, is the norm, but it was not once upon a time. But yeah, uh, Ambrose was the one who kind of shepherded him, through, shepherded him through this notion that there are things in this world which are for use and things which are for pleasure. And uh, we need to be making clear distinctions between them. This remains true of pagan literature as well. Uh, it, it is for use. Things are to be taken out of there and used. They're not an end in and of themselves. Uh, uh, like Walter Pater or Oscar Wilde might say later on in the 19th century. But they remain useful. So he, yes. he is acknowledging that mm -hmm. in the created order and in the cultures that arise out of it, uh, there are uh, in all of them, although he doesn't say that there, but there, is, there are good things, true things, beautiful things, just things, mm -hmm. and, and we should not simply discard them, let alone ignore them, we ought to employ them and, and to baptize them, as it were, with Christian truth and make them appropriate uh, for that use. And so this is a model for engagement with, with culture. It's, so it's, it's a transformationalist model. So it's not escape from the world. And again, in the Christian community, there have been various approaches of, you know, how as a Christian do I relate to the culture around me? Do I simply flee it and avoid it and try and live in isolation from it? I think scripture makes it clear that that's not really an option. We're not to do that. We're to be in the world, but not of it. But then it begs the question, if we're to be in the world, how do we relate to that world? And what does that exactly mean? And, and he gives us an illustration here in this example. So we're to, we are to engage with it. We are to take the gold which was misused here and use it but then you have to find out what the gold is like what mm -hmm. exactly does gold's a, a metaphor here for uh it's not in the biblical 
text there in, in Exodus. But in Augustine's mind, I think it is because he's referring to Virgil and, and truth and Platonism, right? The, well, the goal there is their understanding of the good, the true, the beautiful, the just, etc. Right? Those ideas. It, chiefly, he says, the Platonists. Yeah, it's an idea that, you know, it gets picked up later on. Again, I'm going to come back to the 19th century, which is perhaps a little bit anachronistic. But uh, Matthew Arnold makes the point in Culture and Anarchy that uh, there's all these different notions that we have out there, which we arbitrarily attach this notion of good to. They can't actually support that interpretation. So uh, in his case, he was critiquing uh, American approaches to certain concepts like freedom and democracy and stuff like this. Mm. Uh, uh, and nowadays we might say other, there are other terms uh, that also have this, uh, this, this air of the good about them uh, in a rather arbitrary sense. So tolerance, for instance, is a common one. Arnold's point, as I think was Augustine's point, is that these things are neither good nor evil in and of themselves. They, it, it depends upon the object they take it. It, it. it depends upon the use to which they are put. So the notion of tolerance, you know, if I'm, I'm tolerating, uh, you know, uh, somebody disagreeing with me in the pursuit of truth, well, that, that's a good tolerance. I should tolerate other people's differing viewpoints. Right. Um, because we're all trying to get at the truth. Um, on the other hand, if I'm tolerating my neighbor beating his wife, Tolerance is now a bad thing. Likewise with freedom, uh, you know, should I be free to pursue, you know, the things for which I have been equipped in life and which seem to be my vocation, what have you? Yes, that's, that's, that's freedom is now a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, Adolf Hitler was free to murder six million Jews. Uh, freedom is not a good thing there. And this was a point he made again and again and again, but Arnold wasn't coming out of a vacuum when he, he made this assertion. It wasn't that this was an argument ex nihilo where all of a sudden he, he just created this brilliant insight. He's picking up on Augustine, and Augustine is picking up on prior thinkers as well. This is one of the reasons that the Great Conversation is so important. Augustine was just springboarding off of stuff which had been said by uh, probably most influentially Socrates and Plato, but also to some extent Aristotle as well. Uh, yeah. this, this distinction between... Um, things for use and things for pleasure and it's something that's hardwired into the human psyche so it really resonates with every generation that comes along if I say to somebody who's my friend look you're just using me we know immediately that's a bad thing we don't need to have that unpacked we don't need that explained you're using me what the heck sure. which is to say that friendship then and, and my value of another individual as a friend uh, is not an instrumental value and by instrumental right. I'm going back to Plato's Republic here before. a means rather than yeah Exactly. I'm treating you as a means rather than an end in and of yourself. Um, and, you know, that's toxic. That's, that's evil. You can't do that to people. On the other hand, there are things which have to be a means and to use them as an end in and of themselves is a problem. So let's take the example of drugs. Um, drugs are a means to an end, uh, to health and what have you. If all of a sudden I'm using them, on the other hand, for as an end in and of themselves in which I take pleasure, to use Augustinian language, right. then something has gone wrong. Now I'm taking right. drugs for pleasure. That's, so I'm taking I'm taking a painkiller to uh, alleviate the symptoms of pain, which I don't like. Yes. But if and so that's a, a useful means. So insofar as the pain was preventing me from loving God and loving my neighbor and and enjoying my life and so sure. forth and and doing things properly that. It was, it was such an obstacle. I used the drug for that purpose. But if I was then addicted to it and actually loved the drug for the sake of that experience of the first high from that, that yeah. would then be a problem. The, I, yeah, the, the, the pleasure and the euphoria and whatever comes out of that for you. Yeah. Um, that's obviously an issue. And then we get to the toothier matters, uh, you know, to how are we approaching friends, obviously. And Augustine would have said something quite radical that would have clashed with our, our instincts here. He would have said... Uh, all people are for use. And the only proper object of pleasure, and this is from, I believe it's book three of De Doctrina, the only proper object of pleasure is God himself. And no, he, says it, he says it right in book one, right at the outset. Where we encounter beauty, we're encountering the echoes of God's character. And so we're to see these things of beauty, let's say a work of literature, as conduits through which we apprehend better the nature of God who is the only proper ultimate object of pleasure in and of himself. And this is a, I mean, this is a standard talking point in intellectual conversations uh, right up to the Enlightenment when we seem to have lost track of it. And you wouldn't even have to explain this distinction between use and pleasure and between instrumental and intrinsic value and all these sorts of things to anybody who had a, a basic modicum of an education. This was a starting point. This was foundational. Yeah. Uh, 
Whereas nowadays, you have to explain it every time you bring it up. Nobody knows this, this distinction anymore. So it, it's, it's a great loss in my view. And, it, and the loss was an intentional loss and it happened in the Enlightenment, but that would take us too far off the beaten path here yeah, yeah, to yeah. go into all that. We can, uh, we'll deal with that when we come to it. But it, it's a key distinction and, uh, and it is as you say. So at the outset of uh, a book on how to, so it's on Christian teaching for sure, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it's called. But now yeah. he's talking about how we learn in books one to three. Uh, and book four, by the way, was written about 30 years after the first uh, three books. But he, he says that, uh, and he gives this analogy of, of life being like a journey. And he says, suppose we were travelers who could live happily only in our homeland. And because our absent made us unhappy, we wish to put an end to our misery and return there. We would need transport by land or sea, which we could use to travel to our homeland, the object of our enjoyment. But if we were fascinated by the delights of the journey and the actual traveling, we would be perversely enjoying things that we should be using. Hmm. And we would be reluctant to finish our journey quickly, being ensnared in the wrong kind of pleasure and estranged from the homeland whose presence we could make us happy. So in this mortal life, and here's how he draws it to a close, we are like travelers away from our Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, if we wish to return to the homeland where we can be happy, we must use this world and not enjoy it in order to discern the in invisible attributes of God, which are understood through what has been made. Mm -hmm. Or in other words, we, we derive eternal and spiritual value from corporeal and temporal things. So the corporeal and temporal things which are to be used are like the gold. It's to be used for the thing for which delight is to be found, and that's God himself, but that's it. So we are to use everything good, true, beautiful, lovely, for the sake of him who, uh, in whose image we're made and for whose purposes we are created. So that's his understanding of pleasure. And that really changes the channel on discussions of life and culture uh, in a way that I think is truly transformative. And you addressed it uh, quite well before, I thought. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the notion here that I would use other people uh, in order to get to the proper end in which I ought to take pleasure, which is to say God, uh, brings up this notion, we don't really have time to get into it here, uh, of us being created in the image of God. What exactly does that mean? Yeah. Um, in which case, we have to start talking about incarnational matters. And I think perhaps we'll get around to this here. There, there's this idea, again, you know, if I've if I encounter something which, in which I take pleasure in a work of literature, then according to Augustine, I am discerning, as it were, the shadow of God, the the you know so, something of God's character and, and and nature, and likewise when I take pleasure in another human being in their company and communion with that individual. Augustine's notion is that, again, because human beings are created in the image of God, we're discerning in them the nature of God. And as it were, we're looking through those individuals rather than at those individuals. Right. So this is a discussion also which uh, is common around discussions of uh, Christian iconography and idolatry and stuff like this. Are you looking at or through the icon at God? Yeah. Because if you're looking at the icon, that's a problem. Uh, but if you're looking through the icon, that's a different issue. I'm told from the Orthodox is the purpose of icons and why they look so funny. They don't look very realistic. And no, that's, that's the point. Because they're, right, exactly. <laughs> they're not supposed to look realistic. You're supposed to be looking at uh, through them and not at them. But, precisely. precisely. And I'm not, an, I'm not Orthodox. I'm just explaining no. the understanding, which uh, seems to me quite helpful here. Yeah, and nor do I. I mean, I... I understand iconography in that sense, traditional sense, but uh, to me, it's not a central issue. And likewise with the liturgy, um, the liturgy in and of itself isn't meant, you're, you're not meant to be listening directly to the liturgy, the liturgy, but through the liturgy uh, to something that points beyond it, through, beyond the ritual itself. Which is why it's beautiful. Yes. And this is one of the distinctions that is implied, you know, in later conversations by we talked about uh, Fraser earlier on with the Golden Bough, and he talks mm. about the nature of magic. And he gives us our standard definition of magic from the anthropological perspective, which is authoritative to this day. It's an arbitrary ritual in and of itself. It doesn't point to anything beyond itself. You do the ritual, the, the result follows, and you're done. 
whereas in Christian theology, whether it's Catholic or Orthodox or in some cases Protestant, uh, there's a very different understanding of how these sorts of rituals work. We hadn't talked about this, but that's a really interesting point when it comes to the contemporary views of what happens in language, because their view, that is the postmodern literary theorist view of language, is that language is essentially arbitrary in its signage. So, yes. So Augustine's going to distinguish between natural and conventional signs, first of all, and that itself is already breaking ground uh, and departing from the postmodern literary theory because they insist that all language and signs are arbitrary. Yes. And, uh, right? And that the signs, that is the words that we use, refer to other words. So black only means something insofar as it's the opposite of white and male, the opposite of female. And yeah, this is the language that we inherited from uh, Ferdinand Saussure. Ferdinand Saussure and his structuralist yeah. linguistics, correct. Yeah, and his notions of binary opposition. Uh, whereas that what we know, we know largely only in contradistinction to its opposite, fast from uh, slow, hot from cold, things yeah. of that nature. Augustine completely upends that entire conversation. He, he's engaged in a radically more complex uh, and eloquent uh, approach to this issue. And uh, this brings up a side note. Augustine is continually plagiarized by modern thinkers and misquoted by modern thinkers to say not just different things than what Augustine was already saying, but the very opposite of what Augustine <laughs> Yeah, Derrida does this all over the place. He takes a, an he Augustine and then he flips it upside down and says they said the opposite of what they actually said. It's, it's uh, uh, what's it called again now? Gas lamping or gas lighting or what happened? Gas lighting. He, he yeah. writes, he, so Augustine writes, writes the Confessions. Uh, Rousseau writes a book called The Confessions. Derrida writes one called Circumfession. So around the confessions, yeah, that's yes. right. You're, you're getting around them, you're right. But uh, anyway. Pernicious human being. Well. Um. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, conventional and natural signs here. In, in book three, he talks about the distinction between natural and conventional or figurative signs. Uh, and let me see here. Um, he uses the example of smoke indicating fire. Yeah, yeah, for example. Yeah. But, but fire is not something that we arbitrarily come up with. Fire is fire. It's there. It, it's there in, in the very created order. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that you encounter out there in, as an object in and of itself prior to our awareness of it. Uh, to use more uh, formal language, it has a, uh, a noumenal presence rather than a phenomenological presence. And by that, all I mean is that the, the noumenal is what exists out there as an object. As I said, prior to our awareness of it, it has a reality, it has a truth, sometimes it even has a meaning uh, beyond us. Whereas the phenomenological is that which is contained, it's, it's our construct of it, oftentimes in the form of words, in our mind, by which we represent it, and this is the first level of consciousness. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk later on, I'm sure, about Hegel and the phenomenology of spirit. We don't have time for that today. But the conversation, my point here is that the conversation starts at least with Augustine, probably well before him. Uh, it doesn't start with Hegel. <laughs> Certainly does not. Um, no. But uh, so those things are things that we discover, which are already there. And, yes. and, and Plato talks about the very same sorts of things. And as you say, I don't think there's anything new there. But it sounds novel when you uh, raise it in contemporary discussions because they simply assume that language uh, is, as Heidegger says, the house of being and that words effectively refer to other words. And, and there is no thing to use uh, Augustine's terminology, there's no thing, there's simply signs. Words are signs that point to other signs, and the signs are all pointing back and forward in different directions, but there is no thing that they refer to, and that's the debate actually in the, at the origin of the modern, at the origin of the medieval university, rather the debate between the nominalists and the realists. Do words refer to a thing, or are they just signs? And the modern notion is that all signs are, you know, the signification of modern signs is purely arbitrary. Purely. In the service of some kind of hegemonics. Um, yeah. 
which again, I think is a pernicious notion. It's, 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 uh, it's where everything really begins to go wrong with our understandings of language in the modern context and within modern discussions and what have you. Discussions which are sundered, which are completely ignorant oftentimes uh, of the entire legacy of the rest of the history of Western notions of language prior to Augustine and including Augustine and after Augustine. We've just forgotten everything. Otherwise, we yeah. wouldn't be able to have this modern discussion on the arbitrary nature of language and its pursuit of, of mere power. So that's exactly the point there, because if there are no truths and there is no beauty and there's no goodness which augustine as we started at the outset reading it in at the end of book two talks about plundering the egyptians and the gold that they have which is a genuine thing and mm -hmm. if, if that does not really exist the good the true the beautiful the just etc uh if that doesn't then everything is just arbitrarily decided means of we call it good but it's not really good well this is the debate between plato and the sophists there yes but if it's not if that is not true that there is a truth then really language is just sort of a power play that certain groups use to hold on to their power and privilege and this is the whole uh, thrust of contemporary uh, discourse in the academy at least in literary theory this is what the feminists will claim the the queer theorists will claim the transgender the marxists, the marxists will claim all of them will say that language is just this means of holding on to power and it is not really about uh, a metaphysical reality uh, that what as you said the noumenal realm that doesn't exist that's just a fiction yeah uh, I, and and that needs that idea that it is just a fiction needs to be fought vigorously and and with renewed emphasis because it's not being fought in the academy this this sense has been lost no and, and i think augustine actually makes this point here he says you know consciousness has to take an object and the object on which consciousness fashions is necessarily the phenomenological that is to say the mental construct but that is not in turn to say that the mental construct is not in some ways dependent upon that external that noumenal notion of reality and the truth that that bears in there some interpretations are better uh phenomenological interpretations and constructs and we're continually revising our phenomenological constructs in in the pursuit of that relationship with the noumenal with the external so this sounds really abstract but that passage that you and i were reading beforehand about from de trinitate or likewise in do you want to read that do you want me to read that because th this is where it really gets fleshed out yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Book 1, chapter 13. Quote, In what way did he, that is to say Christ, come but this? The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst, uh, dwelt amongst us, just as when we speak in order that what we have in our minds may enter through the ear into the mind of the hearer. The word which we have in our hearts becomes an outward sound and is called speech. And yet our thought does not lose itself in the sound, but remains complete in, an, uh, in itself and takes the form of speech without being modified in its own nature by the change. So the divine word, though suffering, no change of nature, yet became flesh that he might dwell among us. Is that the quotation that you were thinking of? That is exactly the quotation, and there are a number of really interesting things there. So one is he's explaining how God could be one, and yet at the same time, take on a human form so he could be both god and man how is that possible well in the same way that our thoughts can be expressed in words and there's a distinction there and yet they're not separable right and so he's just explained that and that's yeah. how the incarnation is the articulation of that but in the set the other aspect of it is he's just talked about the importance and in many ways, the priority of thoughts to words, to speech. So, and, and the speech is dependent on integrity of the thought or the reasoning that takes place there. Because again, in contemporary uh, postmodern literary theory, they will dispute that reasoning is even valid. Yeah. It's, it, it's just, these are just words. So the, the appeal to logic, Aristotle's three laws of logic, they just say, well, this is just rhetoric. And that's because they think that thinking is impossible outside of language and language makes reasoning redundant. It's just words, words, words. As this is why, you know, when, when you overturn their arguments and it's not really that difficult to do, it's, it's not, it, difficult. not bothered by it. I mean, it's just, when you oh, start, it's, I've just proven that you're, you know, what you've said is untrue by means of reasoning and logic. They just shrug and move, move ahead in the direction they were going intellectually before. Which is into contradiction and uh, 
assertions of power, which is how they see the whole encounter anyway. Yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, you've been mentioning truth and beauty and goodness and things like this. And, it, you know, it, it, it just points up uh, the evacuation from this conversation of God as traditionally understood in the Western tradition. And one of the, the ways in which we have traditionally grappled with who God is in the Western tradition is by way of the transcendentals. And these are fundamental characteristics that God must have in order to be God. And it's been, it's a huge conversation. It, it has run for a thousand years and change. Uh, but the person at the far end who probably summed it up best is Thomas Aquinas. And that's all he was doing. It wasn't, he wasn't inventing anything new. He was taking a no, conversation. No, he was trying to render it a little bit more clear and crystalline. And so we have these notions that God is beauty, not itself, but himself. He is beauty himself. He is goodness himself. He is truth himself. Uh, and he is, and this is the, the very interesting one to me, and we don't have time to get into it. He is beingness himself. Mm. And, and, and by his beingness, he maintains the beingness of all things that have being and so on and so forth. And if you take that, those things out of the conversation about language and the meaning it can possibly have, all you're left with is brute power. It's yeah. ugly. It's ugly. Yeah. It's cheap. It's crude. But that's where the conversation is now. So they're incredibly sophisticated about the ways in which they articulate this barbarity. I think the Enlightenment is an assault on that very thing. And despite its uh, self publicity that it's the age of reason it's an assault on that very thing and it really expresses what Nietzsche called the will to power it's yeah. it's the brute will detached from reasoning which has dismissed reasoning and its validity because reasoning will acknowledge everything that you just called the transcendentals including the being of God yeah and the 20th century to my mind not not speaking of lit theory now but speaking of in terms of what happens in uh, culture and in history is a culture of genocide and murder and and hatred yeah. uh, unleashed it's i mean where the enlightenment immediately went and again we're not going to get into it yet and not here on not in this podcast is uh, it seems quite natural they end up with mere deism the as the first step yep. yeah as the first step um i also think along with that um one of the things that explains the enormously sophisticated and i mean that in a derogatory sense language used by modern lit theory uh is a desperation inspired by this evacuation of language by the nature of god and and who he is so uh, the evacuation of justice of meaning of value of truth all these things uh inspire a sort of a, a vapid desperation in the modern literary theorists the lacans the foucaults the derrida's and all these sort of people and so the language becomes more and more complex as it becomes ever more bankrupt of that meaning and that truth yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's it's, it's a compensatory impulse i think yeah so you see that in language but uh if you can and this just occurred to me in terms of uh painting we can almost see the exact opposite it goes from uh, in the Renaissance where humanity, there's a sort of a central focus and it's often a triangle of the, you know, the mother and the bambino and so forth and mm -hmm. as a, figures of the Trinity and so forth in the center. There's a focus and then you get to later painting and the Impressionist period starts to become murky. You come to the modern period and increasingly you get into abstract art and portraits that seem to have no focus and in the end you would get blank canvases or just spatterings of paint on it these are the expressions of our now of our understanding of the uh importance of art and meaning and beauty portrayed in our art galleries and yet it really seems to, to be a depiction of just what you've described that's going on in language our language is increasingly sophisticated our art is increasingly ridiculous yeah, it's, I mean, one of the big harbingers of where we are now, Theodore Adorno in the 1930s, uh, he said something that I found very striking and very illuminating. And he asserted very authoritatively that beauty is no longer a relevant aspect of the progress of modern art. And I thought to myself, Jiminy, really, if we're no longer reading, viewing, listening to art for beauty, why are we doing it? Good heavens. Yeah.
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sadly. Uh, in, in what spirit did he say that? Was he? Well, he, said, he said this largely from a, a very leftist perspective where he thought uh, along with. Uh, he this thought this was a good thing, in other words. Yes. And uh, well, <laughs> right. he didn't. He didn't. He, he sort of hung himself on his own. Petard. Yes. He was going along with the Stalinists and, you know, yeah. the, the real sort of left-wing monsters of the 20th century, the Maos and the Pol Pots and people like this, in saying that the only legitimate art was art which served, which was a use for right. left-wing ideology. It served right. the state. That's propaganda, all. in other words. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's all, all real art is propaganda. And, of course, that, that aligned very well with this notion that all art and all language is about power. Right. And uh, but the problem was for Adorno was that he loved music, right? He loved opera in particular. Yes. And uh, he was he was very gifted musically, and eventually he realized that he'd run himself into his own cul-de-sac, and uh, he was in this ugly, bitter world, and he wanted out of it. Uh, and that's why uh, at the end of the day, you know, a, a lot of his left-leaning fellows turned on him because he wouldn't yeah. he wouldn't play ball. Um, yeah. But by that point, it was too late. And his main influence that he'd had on Western influence was to underscore that we should evacuate beauty from art in the 20th yeah. century, yeah. Uh, which is a, a grotesque, ugly, horrible, uh, cheap notion. But it is what it is. Yeah. Maybe if we're talking about Adolf Trina Christiana, we should also talk a little bit about um, his distinction between awareness and thought on the other hand, and the way he conceived of the mind uh, in this. Uh, remember, he said, uh, and he was following here Socrates primarily. Socrates had this analogy whereby he said, we have ideas in mind very much the way in which we might have an aviary. We've got these birds in an aviary. And uh, we don't have the bird in hand, to quote the old pun. Anytime we want to, we can go into the aviary and we can catch the bird and then, you know, we can actively whatever it is we're going to do with the bird. So this idea, Augustine builds on this and he says, okay, there's, there's a huge amount of stuff which we have in our awareness and it's there passively in mind. And it's very much like a noun. It's something that just sits there and we store up more and more and more stuff in our awareness. On the other hand, thought, he said, is, is a verb. And when we think, when we think, we think about the stuff we hold in our awareness. It's held passively in our awareness and it's then we work upon it actively with our thought. And as we run our thought across our awareness, we raise up, as it were, a crop of words. We begin to articulate things to ourselves. So he's giving us a model of language and the way yeah. the language works in the mind prior to articulation, either on the page or in speech or however that might be. Uh, and I thought that that's a very interesting notion. It, it gets picked up on by a lot of later thinkers, probably most significantly uh, Albertus Magnus in the 13th century. But nevertheless, it's become a fundamental way or had become a fundamental way of thinking about human language, that you have words which are passively in the mind and then through active thought are raised up into articulation and what have you. Mm. Um, any thoughts about that? I'm kind of springing this on you, I'm sorry. You are springing it on me. <laughs> we haven't talked about this. This is this in the is, notes, dude. Is it? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, I'm the one who likes to wing it, so you literally taken us to winging it with the bird analogy here. That's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a direction that I tended to take this, other than you're, that you're, in a sense, when you're speaking and using words here, you're talking here about natural versus arbitrary signs to some degree, are you not? Yes, is that? I am. I am. Okay. Well, so the natural signs are like we, we just referred to. There's a fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire. So the fire exists there, and it's naturally there, and it's something that uh, we don't make up. It's not arbitrary. It's not subject to uh, the conventions of a tribe or a culture or a nation. All cultures will acknowledge the existence of fire. They may use a different word for it, but the fire is there. Yes. And the fire itself is a natural sign. So even signs are not even necessarily words. In fact, words are just a form of natural sign. Yeah, um, Augustine tends to call them images in many places, which is sure. interesting. Sure. But those, uh, among those will we'll, we'll include uh, th basic distinctions like those between, you know, water and air and, and male and female even, and then animal and, and human. These are natural signs they're things that are not subject to negotiation or dispute or they're up for dispute but they can plainly be refuted by everybody who looks around them they see these as as not 
arbitrary or conventions. We have not created the convention that distinguishes a human being from an animal. No. Which a modern Darn Darwinist would say that these are just types of animals that we have uh, arbitrarily imposed the notion of a distinction upon them and, and sanctified with the name of, well, we're human beings and we've done so for the sake of power to put the animals down as it were, put them in their place. Well, he would say, this is just ridiculous. Everyone can see the difference between human beings and, and animals. We possess reason. We use words. We do certain things. We're capable of great things that animals are not. On the other hand, we're also capable of great depravity which yeah. is also a distinguishing mark so but these are just naturally observable things just like original sin it's 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 obvious you look at people and you can see what we call sin but whereas conventional signs these are things that are do differ from country to country from tribe to tribe and and some of those can be fallacious and some of them can be truthful, but they are nonetheless arbitrary in the sense that uh, they're, they're based on nature and they're not, um, and, and human discovery and human, and, and anyway, so he makes that basic distinction. And the reason why that's important is to go back to what we said earlier about modern linguistics is it makes all signs, words, and others just conventions. Yeah. And if that's the case, then, and we don't like the way things are, the status quo, we just change the conventions. I mean, you, you take a modern analogy here it's where we say, you know, all signs are arbitrary and you just change uh, the, the, what those things point at and you change the significance and the meaning of what is said. And, you know, that's fine. And everything is arbitrary in terms of language. Uh, but then it's so patently false if you actually think about it, even for a moment. I mean, if I say, you know, you've got a lit stick of dynamite in your back pocket and you say to me back as a literary theorist, well, you, you mean one thing by dynamite, I mean quite another. And, you know, it's neither here nor there. All of a sudden, the natural signification of the dynamite being lit in your back pocket is going <laughs> to impose itself upon you and blow you into some of the rings. Yeah, you'll solve the dispute. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can interpret that however you want, but the natural uh, signification of what that is, is is neither here nor there. And a thinker, for all his flaws, uh, who was really troubled by this in the 20th century because he saw it going in this direction, is Ludwig Wittgenstein. Yep. And Wittgenstein has this black box theory of language whereby he says, uh, you know, if, if I say, you know, in this black box there is a beetle, that can't mean anything to you unless we share and agree upon, you know, what the word beetle signifies. Is that the same thing? Because otherwise it's meaningless. Yeah. Um, so at the very least, we have to all sort of come to an agreement as to what these signs actually mean, whether they're conventional signs or natural signs or whatever they might, they, they might be. Uh, otherwise, literally, we descend into Babel, the world of Babel. We can no longer understand each other. I think, libido, uh, the libido dominandi, the, the will to or lust for power, which Tolkien describes in The Lord of the Rings, right? That's literally yeah. what happens. Yeah, one of the, a later thinker who was really did a brilliant analysis of this and we'll probably never talk about him as George Steiner and his seminal work after Babel. Yeah. Very interesting. Because he talks a little bit about uh, how we have to start our readings. He's talking primarily about scripture. Yes. Um, always in the literal sense, but where literal sense is not fortified by a notion of natural signs and signifiers and what have you, then we have to shift over to figurative reading. And mm -hmm. Augustine is one of these, uh, absolutely pioneering figures when it comes to figurative reading. Figurative reading is one of the favorite forms of reading and writing uh, for the next thousand years. And Augustine is at the center of that conversation. Yes, he is. What are your notions on his distinctions, uh, distinctions between literal and figurative? First of all, he wants to distinguish what constitutes a literal and what constitutes a figurative. And, and basically, the literal reading is the reading that leads us to love God and love our neighbor. And the figurative is uh, when we take a passage and it doesn't fit with that, then we must understand it to be figuratively. He's speaking of scripture there. Yes. Actually, that's that's a key distinction that you're making right there. Um, and something that's why I made it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that when uh, it comes, because he doesn't talk about, uh, he, he makes that seminal distinction between the dichotomy of reading and, and uh, uh, teaching. But for him, teaching, by teaching, he means preaching primarily. Um, yes, he though he does. means teaching as well. 
Um, he, he chiefly means speaking because he's talking about the importance of an audience and in, in conjunction with your view, what we talked about with the Trinity, there's a social aspect of speaking and he's talking about love and again, use and, and delight. And so he's has an eschatological sense of the church in there and all that. But That's right. And he makes this distinction, which uh, has been authoritative up until recently, I suppose, whereby when one is preaching slash teaching, if you cannot see how that immediately conduces to the love, that is to say, taking pleasure in God himself, everything has gone wrong. Everything's gone wrong. You, you need to come back to that. If you cannot see how, how did that conduce to loving God, then you need to refigure things. Preaching needs to be useful in the sense that it leads people to delight in what they ought to delight in, and the, they ought to delight only in God and not in anything else, but they can delight in their neighbor insofar, or they can, uh, they should love their neighbor as, uh, as a means of, of loving God in that sort of order. You know, what's really interesting here, I'm going to read this passage from section two here, is that there, there can be deviations from this and different conventions that get established that lead people astray from this idea. And he says that the influence of these things, this is book two, section uh, 23, uh, 36, and so forth. The influence of all these things varies in proportion to the extent of the agreement achieved with demons by presumptuous minds through such kinds of common language. So we can, we can call something which is true false and what is false true. And if, if culturally we will agree to those things, then they will gain in power where they otherwise lacked it. And so we, we get what Nietzsche calls the transvaluation of all value. If, I, if somebody says that uh, what you said, the stick of dynamite's not a stick of dynamite, that is no power. It doesn't do anything. It just blows up the person that disagrees with it. However, if, if culturally we can get people to agree to that, that mm. that's not really dynamite, that's not really false, and that's not really dangerous, then it grows in its influence, whereas it didn't have it before. So now he's explaining the social power of propaganda there. Right and and mm -hmm. and and the danger of of getting cultures to deviate from what is good, true, beautiful, whatever, just simply by force of agreement. So that that is itself also powerful, I think. And maybe that points back to Wittgenstein's uh, problems. I would say with Wittgenstein's black box theory, yep. uh, which is that uh, yeah, you know, if all of a sudden everybody says the emperor is wearing clothes, yep. Well, then I guess the emperor is wearing clothes. No, he doesn't cease to be. He doesn't cease to be naked. However, the effect of it is to blind us to the fact and to uh, and to lead us to our ruin. Quite frankly, culturally, it leads us to our utter ruin and damnation. Uh, if if people will no longer observe and hold on to that, uh, that that is a serious problem. And this is how the prophets will talk about a blindness amongst the teachers as well. You have blind guides. These, the teachers are supposed to be uh, leading you to this, the discernment of truth. They're leading you to the exact opposite. This is the problem. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about natural science and conventional science and the authority of natural science and the, the authority of the objective and the noumenal and stuff like this, uh, once upon a time, I used to think that, you know, the rank and file of normal everyday people out there outside of the academy just simply wouldn't uh, accept the the ridiculous assertions by, the, you know, the lit theory people, uh, the Lacan, so I. Habermas, is the, all, all those guys. Uh, I thought it was just too absurd to be accepted in general reality. And uh, unfortunately, I can no longer hold to that position. Uh, I've been proven wrong. On this well, side. you've been proven. Uh, so Lewis and Tolkien thought the same thing, by the way. And if you look at Lewis's writing, and, and it's not uncommon amongst the um, intellectuals of their day, they often saw that the common man had a greater sort of sense of common sense that was just going to simply, like uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson, you know, mm -hmm. in, uh, dealing with the idealist, he kicks a rock and says, we'll dispute that, right? It's just like, this is ridiculous. Like, the, the end of the argument is ridicule. Yeah. But as more and more people have been publicly educated and pushed into the public universities furthermore, they've just been more and more people who really uh, at one point would have, if they hadn't been so well educated, would have had better sense than to buy the garbage. Now they want to be part of the in crowd and they agree to the stupidity that they've been taught.
Yeah. In the academy nowadays, if you don't adopt the language of arbitrary meaning and hegemonics and stuff like this, you'll, you're going to get destroyed. In so, fact, that's exactly what happens. And I think there are a lot of academics who are walking around making lit theory noise. I can't call it speaking anymore. Simply in order not to get attacked. Just to stay safe. They make the noise. They, 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 they speak the duck speak, to use Orwellian language. And, uh, and hope that nobody notices them. And that, yeah. in point of fact, they're actually organizing their life around truth and value and meaning and beauty and goodness. But don't let anybody here at the academy know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, because I've got to make this other noise here, which is antithetical to it. Um, well, and, and uh, so that may draw us towards a conclusion on this. I don't know. But to some degree, that's exactly why with, uh, with this uh, podcast, Paideia Today, this is what we're trying to do is to uh, present an alternative to that, two of us talking about the great texts of Western literature, and to some degree, also speaking of how a true liberal arts education would be... Uh, an antidote to all this because again Augustine when he is talking about the importance of words we would see that the, the uh, trivium being expressed in that you know the grammar the logic the rhetoric mm -hmm. but also when he's talking about the thoughts um, the 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 nonverbal things he could be referring uh, and this is what the tradition would understand to the quadrivium the the the, the and music and astronomy and geometry these are the numbers and these are also uh, a form of knowledge and the two together the the thoughts and the words constitute the whole of knowledge the seven liberal arts well mm -hmm. that's that's what christians historically and not just christians but certainly christians once held to nowadays i'm afraid many christians are following the public square and its representation of language which has led to this utter terrible state that you and I have just described. Yeah, it's not just bereft of God in the traditional sense. It is antithetical to his very nature in many senses. In um, our own nature. Yeah, why would you go to a church on Sunday morning in order to hear preaching when preaching is merely the arbitrary uh, uh, exercising of some kind of hegemonic impulse, whatever that might be, in the service of nothing particular whatsoever? What, what, what a grotesque waste of my time. It's worse than a waste of my time. It's a desecration. Or the propaganda which has been agreed upon socially by demonic consent. Sure. Uh, yeah. is, is that all language is? Is it just uh, propaganda? Is it just ide mere ideology? If that's what it is, then why would you read literature? Why would you listen to teaching or preaching? Why would you bother with any of it? And this is the conclusion, uh, ultimately, of the literary theorists who have dominated our, if you our, our century. If you want to know why people don't go to churches anymore, you just got the answer right there. I suppose so. Because they have concluded that that's what's going on there and they've just checked out. Yeah. That's one of the reasons at any rate. That's a, it's a key reason, I think. Yeah. Okay, Scott, this has been very interesting. Thank yeah. you again. No, uh, thank you. It. We'll come together so, on the so next this? podcast to uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, a form of lost literature which is nevertheless one of the most influential forms of literature for uh, at least a thousand years. And that is to say, uh, the very dull sounding topic of hagiography. Yeah. Well, I think we'll find it's other than that. But this was uh, Scott Masson with Paideia today. And this is my colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen, signing off for now. Take care. Take care.